ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد today then we arrive at the chapter Bab Al-Khawfu Min Al-Shirk the chapter regarding fear from shirk having fear of shirk and falling into shirk who wants to read? this reading it's from the book not from memory from the book باب الخوف من الشرك قول الله تعالى إن الله لا يغفر أن يشرك به وقال الخليل عليه السلام وجنبني وبني أن نعبد الأصنام وفي الحديث أخوكما أخاف عليكم الشرك الأصغر فسئل عنه فقال الرياء وعن ابن مسعود رضي الله أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من مات وهو يدعو لله ندا دخل النار رواه البخاري ولمسلم عن جابر رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من لقي الله لا يشرك به شيئا دخل الجنة ومن لقيه يشرك به شيئا دخل النار This chapter now then الشيخ الفوزان حفظه الله تعالى منشنز هذا الباب في غاية المناسبة للأبواب السابقة وهذا من دقة فقهه وفهمه رحمه الله تعالى وحسن تأليفه فإنه لما ذكر في الباب الأول معرفة حقيقة التوحيد وذكر في الباب الثاني فضل التوحيد وما يكفر من الذنوب وذكر في الباب الثالث من حقق التوحيد دخل الجنة بلا حساب ولا عذاب لما ذكر هذه الأبواب ناسب أن يذكر ضد التوحيد وهو الشرك لأنه لا يكفي أن الإنسان يعرف التوحيد ويعمل به بل لا بد أن يعرف ضده وهو الشرك خشية أن يقع فيه ويفسد عليه توحيده لأن من لا يعرف الشيء يوشك أن يقع فيه الشيخ الفوزان says that this chapter now regarding having fear of shirk and falling into shirk it is extremely suitable and appropriate to be at this stage of the book because so far he has done the opening section where he spoke about the reality of Tawheed and then there was the chapter talking about the virtue of Tawheed and what it expiates from the sins and then there was the chapter regarding the one who implements and actualizes Tawheed 
will enter paradise without accountability or punishment. All of those chapters were highlighting some of the essentials and foundations of Tawheed, some of the virtues of Tawheed, some of the great rewards of the one who implements and practices Tawheed, how Tawheed expiates your sins. It is therefore appropriate and suitable to mention after that the opposite of Tawheed too, because it is not sufficient and enough for a person to only know about Tawheed and not know about the opposite of Tawheed. And that is because if a person does not know the opposite, i.e. the evil, then there is a possibility the person may fall into that evil. And that's why when you look at the books of Aqidah, in the books of Aqidah, the scholars from the olden times, they start the books by talking about the Aqidah of Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah, mentioning the correct Aqidah regarding this point and that point and that point, and then slowly as they are building up, all of the correct aqidah, and you're starting to understand the correct aqidah, then they start introducing the aqidah of the people of innovation. There is no point a person studying the aqidah of the people of innovation first, then going and studying the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah. The only way you're going to understand why the aqidah of the people of innovation is wrong is if you have your foundation and basis of understanding what the correct aqidah is to begin with. How are you going to understand why the people of innovation went astray if you do not understand the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah yet? Hence in the books of aqidah, they begin... Bit by bit, step by step, introducing all of the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah, and then after that, slowly introducing the sections about the deviants and the innovators. Even if it is chapter by chapter, in the chapter of Iman, they'll talk about the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah, then they'll talk about the deviants. You're not going to see an Imam from the scholars write a book on Aqidah or any section of Aqidah, and the first thing they do is start talking about the people of innovation and their deviated Aqidah. That cannot be the first thing. The first thing has to be that you establish the foundation of the truth. Once you've understood those principles, then you are going to understand why the innovators are wrong for what they're saying. And the same here. In the first three or four chapters, the shaykh was laying the basic foundations for you to understand the reality of Tawheed, to understand that this is the purpose of our existence, to understand that all of the prophets and messengers came with that same message, to understand the virtues of this Tawheed, how it elevates a person entering into paradise without accountability, to understand all of those things first, some of the basics of Tawheed first, then to go on into this chapter now to show you some of the basics of the opposite 
of Tawheed so that you then are able to draw the lines carefully that this is Tawheed and that is Shirk. Because if you don't know what Shirk is and you only know Tawheed without knowing the details of Shirk, then you do not have a defined line. And so even though you know Tawheed overall, if you don't know Shirk, there is a possibility you may cross over into an area that is actually deemed as Shirk and you don't realize. And that's why it mentions in some of the narrations about the boundaries and about those gray areas and those difficult areas when a person starts treading into those areas not knowing then there is a possibility of tripping over and falling into something which is shirk and you don't know like the famous statement of Hadifa ibn al-Yaman which is كان الناس يسألون النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الخير. He said the people they used to ask the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم about the goodness, about the good things, the worship, the ibadah. What are all of the good things they can do? كان الناس يسألون النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الخير. وكنت أسأله عن الشر. He said, but I used to ask him about the evil. The people they used to ask the messenger about all of the good things and the worship and the obedience and what can we do. But he says, I used to ask the messenger about the evil, the evil things and the haram and what is not allowed and prohibited. Why? He then explains at the end of the narration, مَخَافَةً أَنْ أَقَعَ In another version, مَخَافَةً أَنْ يُدْرِكَ From fear that otherwise I may fall into it. Or from fear that otherwise it may overcome me. And that's why they say, كَيْفَ يَتَّقِ مَنْ لَا يَعْرِفْ مَا يَتَّقِ how can you protect yourself from something if you don't know what you're supposed to protect yourself from? How can you protect yourself from something if you don't know what you're supposed to be protecting yourself from? You need to be told this is the danger or that is the danger and then you know to protect yourself from that thing or this thing. You can then save yourself and guard yourself from those matters because you now know what those matters are. That's the purpose of knowing shirk and the details of shirk. So that you know what that is in order to draw the line carefully and protect yourself from ever falling into those areas of shirk. So as Shaykh al-Fawzan says, it is very appropriate that the chapter has been put here. One of the key things to learn in Kitab al-Tawheed is the order of the chapters. Why has the Shaykh put this chapter here 
relative to the previous chapter? What's the connection? Every time you should think about that question. This is one of the things they used to have on the curriculum in the University of Medina for this book. For students to think about the connection between the chapters. Why has he put this chapter here? He wrote the book. He could have put this chapter at the end, in the middle. Why did he put it here next to the other one just before? To think about the connection between the chapters and the logical way that he is presenting Tawheed and Shirk to the readers. The other thing to take note of, another critical point that they used to make as a point of curriculum you had to learn, the test one in the exam, is the title of each chapter. To think about the title of each chapter and then the evidences that are in that chapter and the connection between them. The connection between them. Why do you need to know that? That's even more important. Why? Because you could memorize all of these evidences. You could memorize every chapter. But if you don't understand the intention behind those evidences and what they are being used to highlight, then it's not going to be of the proper benefit to you. You've memorized them, but you don't really then understand what they mean and why they were used in that chapter and what's the point the shaykh is trying to make with this hadith or this ayah. So they used to say one of the things they test you on in the curriculum, they would say to you, for example, in this chapter, Babul Khawfi Mina Shirk, the shaykh put down this hadith or this ayah. Why? Why did he put this ayah in that chapter? What's the connection between that title of the chapter, Fearing Shirk? to this ayah or to this hadith. So every time we go through these evidences, think about that. So right now we have the chapter, Babul Khawfi Mina Shirk. The chapter regarding the fear from shirk. And as we said, the reason for knowing and understanding shirk is so that you know the opposite of tawheed and can therefore avoid it. And also because knowing shirk and what shirk is, and the evils of it, and how it works, gives you a better understanding of Tawheed. By knowing the opposite of something, it gives you a better understanding of the first thing. And that's why as Shaykh Al-Fawzan says here, وَالضِدُّ يَظْهَرُ حُسْنُهُ الضِدُّ وَبِضِدِّهَا تَتَبَيَّنُ الْأَشْيَاءِ This is what they mention always, وَبِضِدِّهَا تَتَبَيَّنُ الْأَشْيَاءِ with the opposites of something, that thing becomes clear. By understanding the opposite of something, then that thing becomes clearer in your mind. And the Sheikh gives examples. He says, فَلَا يَعْرِفُ قِيمَةَ الصِّحَّةِ إِلَّا مَنْ ذَاقَ الْمَرَضِ That a person does not know the true value of good health until he has been sick. When a person has been sick, has been ill properly, then when he recovers, he understands the value of good health. And another example, وَلَا يَعْرِفُ قِيمَةَ النُّورِ إِلَّا مَنْ وَقَعَ فِي الظَّلَامِ 
A person does not know the value of light until he experiences darkness. A person doesn't recognize the value of light until he experiences darkness. And لا يعرف قيمة الماء إلا من ذاق أو إلا من عطش. A person does not understand and realize the value of water until he experiences thirst. A person doesn't realize the value of water until he experiences thirst. In the summer, when we used to be there, it would be almost 50 degrees. When it gets to June, July time in Saudi Arabia, the most I think I ever saw it on the big clocks in the streets, they have the thermometer, 46 I think. 46, maybe 48. And there are rumors, Allahu A'lam, they say that those figures are always below the real figure. Because there's a rule in Saudi in certain businesses, once it gets to 50, the workers have the right to go home. So apparently it's always a degree or something slightly less. But 46, 47, 48, in those days like that, you would walk out from your room with AC on, you walk outside, and you're not running or jogging, walking calmly. You've been inside your AC room, everything, cool, shower, dress, put your fresh garments on, and casually walking as easy as can be. No stress, no nothing. Casually walk from here to Dudley, opposite the car park, and you'll be sweating just from casually walking because of 48 degrees on top of your head. So then in those days, we used to experience the reality of a drink when it came. In those days when you go get a drink, it's completely different to now you go home after the class and have a drink of water from your house, and it's zero degrees outside anyway. So the sheikh says, the one does not understand the reality of water, or the value of water, until he experiences thirst. And this is a very good one. A person does not realize the value of food until he experiences hunger. And that's why the scholars have mentioned when you're fasting in Ramadan, there are many wisdoms behind fasting. And it's not just about the hunger, but the hunger is one of the points. There are many wisdoms behind fasting. Hunger and experiencing hunger is one of the points. Because when you experience hunger, it then gives you a value, a true value you can put upon the blessings Allah has given you. That when you eat at iftar, at maghrib, then you value that food and you realize what it is now and the blessing it is compared to the hunger you were experiencing earlier. And you recognize the blessings of Allah upon you and you know that there are many people in the world who do not have this level of blessing. Rather, they are constantly in your previous state, prior to your iftar, in hunger. Constantly, barely a thing to eat. So, 
The Sheikh says a person only values food who has experienced hunger. وَلَا يَعْرِفُ قِيمَةَ الْأَمْنِ إِلَّا مَنْ أَصَابَهُ الْخَوْفِ And a person doesn't realize the value of safety and security until you've experienced fear. You've been in some situation in some country where there is turmoil and there is rebellion and there is chaos and you cannot even drive down the road for fear that there will be roadside bombs blowing up your cars. When a person has experienced that type of fear and lack of safety and security, then you realize the true value of the blessing that you have of safety and security and calmness. Even, and therefore the Sheikh says, لا يعرف قيمة التوحيد وفضل التوحيد وتحقيق التوحيد إلا من عرف الشرك وأمور الجاهلية حتى يتجنبها. So in the same way as Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, a person will not truly understand the value of Tawheed and the virtue of Tawheed and the actualization of Tawheed until he also understands that which opposes it in terms of shirk. And he can therefore remove himself from that shirk and the affairs of jahiliyyah that they were upon, that is the person who will then truly understand the reality of tawheed and the value of tawheed. So then, yuhafidhu ala tawheed. He will then guard over and preserve his tawheed. وَمِنْ هُنَا يَظْهَرُ خَطَأ هؤلاء الذين يقولون لا داعي أن نتعلم العقائد الباطلة ونعرف المذاهب الباطلة. Here the Sheikh says, it becomes clear to you then the mistake of those people who say there is no need to learn about the deviated groups and the deviated methodologies. There's no need to learn about them. Why are you talking about them? Forget them. Let's just worry about ourselves. The reality is you're only learning about those deviants and their deviated ways for this purpose. Because by understanding their deviations and how they've gone wrong, you now know what to protect yourself from. And you know the errors that they fell into and how they fell into those errors too. In the books of Aqidah, they do highlight and emphasize not just the mistakes they fell into, but how they fell into those mistakes too. What was their reasoning? And what was their logic? How did they end up misinterpreting this ayah? How did they end up misinterpreting these ahadith? How did they end up in this deviated aqidah of theirs? And they highlight what the people of innovation used to do and how their logic used to work. So some of them... The, the, the main and overall type of thing that you see amongst them all is the principle that they had of taqdeemul aqal ala naqal. That their logic and their intellect was given priority over the texts. So what they intellectually worked out, 
That's what they believed in. Even if the ayah of the Qur'an was apparently saying something else, and the hadith was apparently saying something else, they had worked out intellectually in their minds, in their logic, in their rationale, that it should mean such and such. So then, what would they do when they find evidences that don't say such and such? They simply twist and misinterpret and change those evidences, mold them so that they fit into the logic and the rationale they've already decided upon. And that's how many of them went astray. They decided you cannot attribute to Allah these various names and attributes. Because if you do, you're going to be comparing Allah to creation. They made up this mind. They made up their mind. You can't attribute and affirm to Allah names and attributes. If you do, you're going to be comparing Him to creation. So now they've made up this principle and this logic and this rationale in their minds, in their intellect. So every time they come across an ayah or a hadith or the names and the attributes, they can't affirm them. They've made their principle. So now every time they simply have to make their tahrif, their ta'atil, all sorts of things of distortion, misinterpretation, changing this, changing that, to mold everything in a way that will work with the decisions they've already made. It's like the scholars say, they decide on their aqidah first, and then they sort out the evidences to fit. And that's one of the reasons why many of them went astray. So when you understand that's the reason and the method and the, the way that they went astray, that was the reason behind it, you then know you're not going to do that with the texts of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. You're not going to go into a situation where you decide something in your mind, surely it has to be like this, or surely only such and such a thing is appropriate to Allah. You decide something in your mind first, and then you try to work out evidences to fit what you've decided. Or you try to work out evidences, hadith, that maybe no scholar has ever used as an evidence for what you are trying to use it for now. Maybe a person comes along and he says, look, there's a hadith which proves X, Y, and Z. And you don't find a single scholar who ever found this benefit that you, mashaAllah, have found from this hadith. And they never worked out that this hadith proves what you think it proves. So a person needs to be careful with the texts and the evidences. And the easiest method of being careful is that all of the sunnah, it is preserved and it is explained. Scholars have explained it through centuries and centuries. And that's why a Shaykh al-Fawzan says, if you get a book of aqidah from one of the scholars a thousand years ago, and you get a book of aqidah from one of the scholars today, both of the books of aqidah will be identical. Because it is the same aqidah, the same manhaj, the same methodology that they are upon. So that is what the Shaykh mentions in the introduction to this affair or to this chapter. So, لِهَذَا قَالَ الشَّيْخِ بَابُ الْخَوْفِ مِنَ الشِّرْكِ أَيْ أَنَّ الْمُوَحِّدِ يَجِبُ أَنْ يَخَافَ مِنَ الشِّرْكِ وَلَا يَقُولُ أَنَا مُوَحِّدِ وَأَنَا عَرَفْتُ التَّوْحِيدِ 
So a believer needs to have fear from shirk and not to say that I am a person of tawheed. I don't need to worry about this. Wala khatara alayya min shirk. And there is no danger upon me from ever falling into shirk. Hada igra'un min shaytan. If a person thinks in that way, that I'm safe, I know I'm not going to prostrate to idols or do anything. I'm safe, I'm not going to fall into shirk. If a person thinks in that way, then it is a deception of the shaitan upon him. A person does not feel safe and secure from the plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would always make dua, Ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbit qalbi ala deenik. Oh, the one who changes the hearts of the people. Keep my heart firm upon your religion. So here then, Sheikh Al-Fawzan, he says, or the evidence, the first evidence of the chapter, وَقَوْلُ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَن يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَأْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive that you commit shirk alongside him. But he forgives all else to whom he wills. And the meaning of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiving all else to whom he wills is that the other sins besides shirk, they will all be under tahta mashi'atillah. They will be under the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, other sins besides shirk. Maybe you'll be forgiven on them on that day, maybe you'll be punished and cleansed and purified regarding them on that day. So this ayah, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ That Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk with Him. وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ But He forgives all else to whom He wills. It is an evidence highlighting the severity of the danger of shirk. The severity of the danger of shirk. How so? Because Allah is telling us that He does not forgive the mushrik, the one who dies upon shirk, despite the fact, despite the fact, أَنَّ رَحْمَتَهُ وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَاللَّهُ لَا يَغْفِرُ لِلْمُشْرِكِ مَعَا أَنَّ رَحْمَتَهُ وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ that Allah will not forgive the one who dies upon shirk, despite, despite the fact that Allah, His mercy encompasses everything. وَلَكِنِ الْمُشْرِكِ لَا يَدْخُلُ فِيهَا But a mushrik does not enter under the mercy of Allah. The one who dies upon shirk, does not enter under the mercy of Allah. Allah, His mercy encompasses everything. But the one who dies upon shirk is outside of that. 
This therefore highlights to you the severe danger of shirk. فَإِذَا كَانَ الشِّرْكُ بِهَذِهِ الْخُطُورَةِ فَإِنَّهُ يَجِبُ الْحَذَرُ مِنْهُ غَايَةَ الْحَذَرِ And so if shirk is of this level of danger, then no doubt a person needs to take precaution to the maximum level from ever falling into shirk. فَكُلُّ الظُّنُوبِ مَظِنَّةُ مَظِنَّةُ الْمَغْفِرَةِ وَرَجَاءَ الْمَغْفِرَةِ إِلَّا الشِّرْكِ all sins are within the fold of the forgiveness of Allah. And you have hope that Allah will forgive you for your sins and your shortcomings. They all fall under the fold of forgiveness from Allah. You can be forgiven except shirk. If you die upon shirk, then that is not within the fold of forgiveness. In another ayah, in the Quran, في الآية الأخرى أخبر سبحانه أنه حرم الجنة على المشرك. In another ayah, emphasizing this one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that paradise is haram for who? For the mushrikun, the one who dies upon shirk, it is haram, meaning prohibited, forbidden. The mushrik who dies upon shirk, exiting from the fold of Islam or never entering, that individual is prohibited from entering the paradise. إِنَّهُ مَنْ يُشْرِكْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ الْجَنَّةِ the one who commits shirk with Allah, then indeed Allah has made haram upon him paradise. Prohibited and forbidden for him to enter paradise. And instead his end result, his residence, his abode, where he's going to go is a nar. The fire. وَمَا لِلظَّالِمِينَ مِنْ أَنصَارِ And there is no uh, helpers, there are no helpers for the ظَالِمِين in this case in reference to the ones who commit shirk, die upon shirk. All of this talking about the one who dies upon shirk, we are talking about which type of shirk from the two overall types. A shirk akbar major shirk. As we go through the chapters, we'll explain a little bit more about certain actions that are classified as major shirk and certain actions that are classified as minor shirk. What's the main difference between an action that is major shirk compared to an action classified as minor shirk. The main difference being... Um, but, uh, some, uh, well, major shirk is when you do it obviously, and minor shirk is when you do it accidentally. But what's the difference in the ruling? If somebody does major shirk, and somebody does minor shirk, what can we say about the person who's done major shirk? He's a mushrik, so he's outside of... 
But somebody who does minor shirk, so minor shirk doesn't necessitate that you have exited from the fold of Islam. The major difference, major shirk, the person who commits major shirk, that's exiting from the fold of Islam. But minor shirk, there are different types of actions, we're going to cover them, which constitute minor shirk then those are not actions that necessitate a person exiting from the fold of Islam. Instead, minor shirk can be considered, as some scholars said, as the biggest of the major sins. Some of the scholars described minor shirk as the biggest of the major sins, as the biggest of the kaba'ir. And all of the kaba'ir can be tahta. So that's the major difference. Major shirk, a shirkul akbar. The person exits from the millah. And as for minor shirk, he does not necessitate exiting from the fold of Islam. So here, with all these evidences about Allah not forgiving the one who dies upon shirk, primarily the tafsir of this is about the one who's committed major shirk. There is a tafsir about the one who commits minor shirk as well, which is possible. And that is the opinion of some of the scholars that major shirk finished, no doubt about that. But minor shirk, some of the scholars said, if you commit minor shirk and die upon it, it is not tahta mashi'atillah. It's not under the, the will of Allah on that day. Meaning it's not one of those things that maybe Allah will just forgive you or maybe you'll be punished. They say it's not one of those types. Rather, what is it then? That the scholars have said minor shirk, it is a type of sin that you will guaranteed be punished for if you die upon it. It's not one of those things which is under the will of Allah. Maybe you'll just be forgiven and passed. Minor shirk. Some of the scholars have mentioned, it's an opinion of some of them, it is an action, if you die upon it, you cannot be forgiven. Because the ayah says, Allah does not forgive shirk. So even minor shirk, they said, cannot be forgiven. But the only difference, like we said, is, minor shirk hasn't exited you from Islam. So if you can't be forgiven for it, but you haven't exited from Islam, it must mean you will be purified, purified via... How will you be purified? You go to a hellfire or you are punished, you are given a level of punishment, a degree of punishment, and from that it cleanses you of those sins, purifies you, and then you may enter into paradise. So, some of the scholars have highlighted that, even the minor shirk in this case, you could say that it does not get forgiven either, but the only difference is you'll only be temporarily punished for that minor shirk and then cleansed, but the major shirk you'll be punished forever. So then, the first evidence, وَفِي الْحَدِيثِ أَخْوَفُ مَا أَخَافُ عَلَيْكُمْ أَشْشِرْكُ الْأَصْغَرِ فَسُئِلَ عَنْهُ Before that, وَقَوْلُ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ and then, وَقَالَ الْخَلِيلُ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامُ 
وَجْنُبْنِي وَبَنِيَّ أَنْ نَعْبُدَ الْأَصْنَامِ This now, the second ayah, he highlights the dua that Ibrahim alayhi salam made. The dua that Ibrahim alayhi salam made. وَقَالَ الْخَلِيلِ الْخَلِيلِ Indicating the khullah, the khullah, which is the highest level of love, so Ibrahim alayhi salam was the Khalil of Allah. And Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was the Khalil of Allah also. And Musa alayhi salam was Kalimullah. And Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was also Kalimullah. So that's why they say, of course, the best of the prophets and messengers is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam because he was. Khalilullah and Kalimullah. And then the second of them, Ibrahim alayhi salam, and he only had one of those two characteristics, Khalilullah. Then Musa alayhi salam, and he only had one of the two characteristics, Kalimullah, meaning Allah spoke to him. And then Nuh and Isa alayhi salam. So Ibrahim alayhi salam, سُمِّيَ بِالْخَلِيلِ لِأَنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ اتَّخَذَهُ خَلِيلًا كَمَا قَالَ تَعَالَى وَاتَّخَذَ اللَّهُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ خَلِيلًا But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took Ibrahim alayhi salam as a khalil. وَهِيَ أَعْلَى دَرَجَاتِ الْمَحَبَّةِ And that is the greatest level of the love. So Ibrahim alayhi salam and think, this is Ibrahim alayhi salam making this dua. The second best of all of the messengers. Ibrahim alayhi salam says, وَجْنُبْنِي Meaning, distance me and protect me and guard me. الْأَصْنَامِ From the worship of the idols. Protect me and distance me and... Keep me safe from the worship of the idols. And we mentioned last time, Al-Asnam and Al-Awthan. The difference between them is, because it will become important again in future chapters, it comes up everywhere. The difference between the Asnam and the Awthan, both in English we say idols, but... Uh, 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 one, that one of them is carved into a face. Which one? Asnam or Awthan? You got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> Asnam, you said Othan first. Your final answer, what's it going to be? Uh, it's, uh, Asnam. Asnam, correct. So Al-Asnam, they are the idols that are sculptured upon an appearance. They are sculptured upon an appearance. Whereas Othan, any type of idol, the rock, the tree, this, that, anything. But the Asnam are the ones sculptured upon some type of appearance. Some of them even say that the sanam is something sculptured upon the appearance of people. Some of them have even said that the sanam, sanam, asnam, is something sculptured upon the appearance of a person. And anything else sculptured upon other things or anything else is therefore wathan. Some of them have mentioned that too. 
So Ibrahim السلام, is making dua to Allah to protect him from the worship of the idols. Even though we know that the prophets and messengers are ma'asumin from ever falling into shirk. Prophets and messengers can never fall into shirk or even major sins. But minor affairs may occur, but the major sins and the shirk, they do not fall into it. But the fact that Ibrahim salam is making this dua for himself and his offspring, and my offspring protect me and my offspring from the worship of the idols. This indicates, as the Salaf said, as the Salaf said, وَمَنْ يَأْمَنُ الْبَلَاءِ بَعْدَ Ibrahim. Who is there who thinks that they are safe after Ibrahim salam? If Ibrahim salam is making dua to Allah to protect him from shirk, and that's Ibrahim salam, then who are you or me or anybody else? How can the Salaf said, how can anybody feel safe? and secure, and that I'm upon Tawheed, I'm safe, I'm secure. Who can feel that and think that when the likes of Ibrahim salam are making dua to Allah to protect them from the worship of the idols? فَإِبْرَاهِيمُ خَافَ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ الْوَقُوعِ فِي الشِّرْكِ لَمَّا رَأَى كَثْرَةَ وَقُوعِهِ فِي النَّاسِ So Ibrahim salam feared falling into shirk because of what he saw from the people and how much they had fallen into shirk. As it mentions in the Quran, That my Lord, they have certainly misguided many of the people. The idols and the idol worship has misguided many of the people. So Ibrahim salam was making the dua to Allah to protect him from ever falling into the worship of the idols, from ever falling into the worship of the uh, idols of their various natures that they had in those times at the time of Ibrahim salam. وَفِي هَذَا أَبْلَغُ الرَّدْ عَلَى هَؤُلَاءِ الَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ لَا خُوفَ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِينَ مِنَ الْوُقُوعِ فِي الشِّرْكِ this is a refutation upon those people these days who belittle studying Tawheed. There are people these days who belittle studying Tawheed. And they say, you people are sat there reading books of Tawheed and don't commit to uh, shirk and these things. Everybody, that's easy. Muslims, do you see anybody prostrating to idols, they say? Do you see anybody committing shirk like the mushrikun used to at that time, the Quraysh? Wasting your time. Why are you not talking about Palestine and Iraq and uh, other areas where Muslim lands and things are happening? Let's talk about those things. Let's fix those things. Let's find solutions instead of sitting here wasting time on Tawheed. And this, the Shaykh says, is a refutation upon them. This, that Ibrahim alayhi salam, from the best of the prophets and messengers is making dua, fearing for himself, then who are the people today who barely even know these chapters of Kitab al-Tawheed, let alone anything else? 
barely even know this, let alone anything else. So this is a refutation upon those who belittle studying Tawheed and studying the affairs of Tawheed and Shirk. Then, وَفِي الْحَدِيثِ قَالَ أَخْوَفُ مَا أَخَافُ عَلَيْكُمْ أَشْرِكَ الْأَصْغَرِ فَسُئِلَ عَنْهُ فَقَالَ الْرِيَاءِ This hadith, where the Prophet wasallam said, the greatest thing that I fear upon you is minor shirk. So when he was asked about it, he said, showing off. Meaning, showing off. The hadith, some of the scholars have mentioned, has possibly some weakness within it. However, from all of the different chains of narration put together, then the hadith is established. Sometimes you can have a weak hadith. You can have a weak hadith, which is only just considered weak. If you have like a threshold where you check all the different things, the narrators and all the parts, and you have a threshold, but maybe a particular hadith, when you check all the variables, falls just below the threshold to be considered authentic. But this particular hadith that falls just below the threshold has many other narrations all saying the same thing as this one. And all of them, all are weak, but only just below the threshold too. So if you then have, very simplistically speaking, this took four years otherwise, but simply speaking, if you then have multiple ahadith, which are all weak, but all of them are only just falling into the category of weak, they can now combine to strengthen one another, to cross the threshold and be considered authentic. Multiple narrations all backing each other up, and all of them only just fell below the threshold and were considered weak. When you combine them all together, the strength of their combination is enough to be able to push up into the level of authenticity. And that's what they say regarding this narration, that it is authentic, that's the phrase you hear sometimes. It is authentic via the collection of all of its chains. So in the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, he said to them, the biggest thing that I fear upon you is minor shirk. So when he was asked about that, what is that? He said, showing off. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, who was the Prophet ﷺ talking to? The biggest thing that I fear upon you is the minor shirk. What is that? Showing off. Who was the Prophet talking to? Who was he addressing? The companions, Abu Bakr, Umar, radiyallahu anhuma, the great companions of this ummah, and the Prophet ﷺ, was telling them, I fear upon you, I fear upon you the minor shirk, the showing off, I fear upon you, fear upon the great companions, the muhajirun, the ansar, those who had reached the pinnacles of understanding the affairs and tawheed and aqidah, and the Prophet ﷺ is telling them still, 
that I fear upon you this minor shirk. So the same principle again. Who can possibly feel safe and belittle Tawheed? Who can think, no, we don't need to study this waste of time, we're not ever going to fall into it. And yet the Prophet ﷺ is telling the greatest of the companions, the Muhajirun, the Ansar, Abu Bakr, Umar, that I fear upon you this affair of shirk, of the minor shirk, and of the showing off. The showing off, Ar-Riya, ar in the Arabic language comes from the verb to see something, and that's what Ar-Riya is, you're doing something to be seen. And there is another type of showing off known as sum'ah, and that is when you are doing something not to be seen, but to be heard. And both of those are types of showing off. And it does not even necessitate that there's anybody there, and you could fall into showing off. When people are there, it's obvious. Somebody walks in and you beautify your prayer to show off. Somebody walks in, you beautify your Qur'an or whatever you're doing to show off, to be heard in that way. But how can you show off if nobody is there? You imagine people to be there? <laughs> is it maybe, for example, if you're praying and you think the angels are witnessing this or something like that? Something else? We mentioned it, I'm sure. Huh? But how? If nobody is there, nothing. Who, how, who can you be showing off to? How? So your end goal, so your purpose, what you're doing. But if nobody sees you, hears you, then how? Can't explain, explain them. Why are you answering? When you talk about it later, yeah. So it can be you do an action, you do an action that nobody is there, nobody hears you, nobody sees you. But afterwards, you talk about what you've been doing. It's like the example we used to give. Uh, uh, the brothers, they say to you tonight after Isha, after the class, let's go out. When it finishes, let's get some food tonight. And you say to them, Ikhwan, I'd love to. I'd love to, but you know, last night, uh, four hours of Qiyamul Layla did. <laughs> I'm a bit tired today. I'm going to have to give it a miss. I'd love to, but four hours, you know. So this now is considered showing off. Even though at the time when you were praying last night, maybe your own wife didn't even know you were awake praying. But then the next day you come and you start saying things like that, to then be known that you've been doing this worship and you've been doing that worship, that's considered sum'ah. That's a type of the sum'ah. To be heard of the actions that you've been doing. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, that I fear upon you this type of the minor shirk. And this type of shirk, what type is it? Showing off. Khafi. So this type of shirk, it is shirkun khafi. And these kinds of uh, uh, categorizations about open and apparent shirk and hidden shirk, showing off is a type of hidden shirk. What does it mean that it's a type of hidden shirk? Imagine now you're praying in the mosque. Yeah. Imagine you're praying in the mosque and people walk in. 
So now you start praying just to impress them. Do they know that you're praying to no. impress them? No. So can they see that you're committing shirk? No. So therefore it is a hidden type of shirk. It is a shirk within the intentions. There's a chapter coming on that. It's a shirk within a person. It's not something visible. You're not prostrating to an idol. You're not committing a visible, apparent form of shirk. But you're doing something internally, which is shirk. You're doing your action now for the sake of them. Not for the sake of anyone else. But somebody looks at you, you're just praying. Somebody looks at you, you're just praying. They can't see anything else other than the fact that you're just praying. It's what's within you that makes the difference. Hence, Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned, two people could come into the mosque and they pray side by side next to each other. Two people come into the mosque, they pray side by side next to each other, and both of them pray exactly the same upon the sunnah. But one of them... The words of Ibn Qayyim, something to the effect of, one of them is up in the heavens, and the other one is down in the ground. Even though they've walked in side by side, prayed identically, if you looked at them, upon the sunnah perfect, why is one of them up in the heavens and the other one down in the ground? Because one was sin. Exactly. One of them was sincere. One was praying sincerely for the sake of Allah up in the heavens. Elevated, raised. Doing it sincerely for the sake of Allah. The other one came and did identical worship. Identical. You couldn't tell the difference perfectly. But he's down in the ground because his intention inside was corrupt. His intention inside was corrupt. And that's why the Salaf, they used to say, مَا عَالَجْتُ شَيْئًا أَشَدَّ عَلَيَّ مِنْ نِيَّتِي يَوْمًا لَكَ وَيَوْمًا عَلَيْكَ That I never had to deal with something more difficult than my own intention. One of the Salaf mentioned, I never had to deal with anything more difficult than my own intention. One day it's with you, it's good. And one day it's against you. And you need to keep fighting it to keep it pure and sincere. So this is the meaning of it being a hidden type of shirk. It is not known by the people when they see it. It's within the heart of an individual. And showing off riya, it is from the characteristics of who? Which mushrikeen specifically? The munafiqeen. The hypocrites, it is from their characteristics to be upon showing off. And it is mentioned in the Quran, وَإِذَا قَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ قَامُوا كُسَالًا يُرَاءُونَ النَّاسِ وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا That when they stand for the prayer, they stand in... Laziness, they don't want to be doing it. And they're only yura'oonan nas. They're only showing the people that we're here, we're praying, we're believers. And they don't want to be doing that. They're upon laziness. They hate to be doing that. And they're only doing it yura'oonan nas. Just to show the people. So that is the pure form of showing off. That is the pure form of showing off whereby... 
your actions are absolutely and completely from the basis for other than Allah. And that's shirk, major. As for the other forms of showing off, where your actions are for the sake of Allah, but then something occurs, then that is the, the minor shirk and the showing off mentioned here. There's a hadith, a Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions that the people who show off on the Day of Judgment, it will be said to them, اِذْهَبُوا إِلَى الَّذِينَ كُنْتُمْ تُرَاؤُونَهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا هَلْ تَجِدُونَ عِنْدَهُمْ جَزَاءً Go to the people who you used to show off in front of in the world. Go to them, the ones you used to show off in front of. See if you find any reward from them for you now. See if they'll give you reward for it. And of course nothing. فَهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ فِيهِ الْخَوْفُ مِنَ الشِّرْكِ So this hadith highlights very clearly the fear a person should have from falling into shirk. Because if the Prophet ﷺ feared this for the likes of the muhajirun, the great companions, Abu Bakr, Umar amongst them, if the Prophet feared this upon the likes of those companions, then what therefore of us and what our fear should be of falling into shirk and the affairs of shirk. Then An ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal man mata wa huwa yad'u min dunillahi niddan dakhala al-nar. Rawah al-Bukhari. Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever dies whilst committing shirk alongside Allah, whilst committing any shirk alongside Allah, will enter the hellfire. هَذَا خَبَرٌ مِنَ الرَّسُولِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنَّ مَنْ مَاتَ عَلَى الشِّرْكِ فَهُوَ مِنْ أَهْلِ النَّارِ This is an information, a detail given to us from the Prophet ﷺ informing us that the one who dies committing shirk, then any type of shirk, shay'an, then he will enter the hellfire and he will not be forgiven. And like we spoke about before, notice in the hadith, the word shay'an. Man mata yushriku billahi shay'an. Oh, uh, now we missed one again. Huh? We'll come to it. So, man mata wa huwa yad'u min dunillahi niddan. The one who dies and he's calling upon partners alongside Allah will enter the hellfire. The one who dies calling upon partners alongside Allah then he will enter the hellfire. There are three narrations here. There is the one from Ibn Mas'ud regarding man mata wa huwa yushriku billahi shay'in dakhalanna. That's a hadith. And here you have as well man mata wa huwa yad'u min dunillahi niddan dakhalanna. And then you have the Jabir uh, uh, version anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam man laqiya Allah la yushriku bihi shay'in dakhalal jannah wa man laqiyahu yushriku bihi shay'in dakhalanna. Three narrations here one of them saying whomsoever dies whilst committing any shirk with allah will enter the hellfire 
The other version of the wording saying, whomsoever dies whilst calling upon partners alongside Allah will enter the hellfire. And in the third version, whoever meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whilst committing shirk alongside him, any type of shirk, or whilst not committing any type of shirk, then he will enter paradise. And whomsoever meets him committing any type of shirk will enter the hellfire. مَنْ لَقِيَ اللَّهَ لَا يُشْرِكُ بِهِ شَيْئًا دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ Whomsoever meets Allah not committing any shirk, he will enter paradise. And whomsoever meets Allah on the day of judgment, committing shirk will enter the hellfire. All of those three have the same meaning. The one who dies upon tawheed enters paradise. The one who dies committing shirk upon shirk enters Hellfire, clear meanings from all of those narrations upon the same point, and that is emphasizing the ayah, Inna Allah la wa that Allah will not forgive that you commit shirk with him. And then the shaykh says, وَمَنْ يَدْرِي مَتَى يَمُوتِ Who knows when they will die? Who knows when they will die? وَمَنْ يَدْرِي مَاذَا يَمُوتُ عَلَيْهِ And who knows what state a person will die upon. فَالْإِنسَانُ يَخَافُ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ مِنْ سُوءِ الْخَاتِمَةِ So a person fears upon himself for having a bad end. وَأَنْ يَمُوتَ وَهُوَ يُشْرِكُ بِاللَّهِ And that he dies committing shirk with Allah. فَيَكُونُ مِنْ أَهْلِ النَّارِ So he becomes from the people of the hellfire. فَالْإِنسَانُ يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَحْضَرَ مِنَ الشِّرْكِ طُولَ حَيَاتِهِ لِأَنَّهُ لَا يَدْرِي فِي أَيِّ لَحْظَةٍ يَمُوتٍ فَيَكُونُ مِنْ أَهْلِ النَّارِ So a person has to be upon precaution from shirk throughout his life because you do not know when you may die and what state you will be upon when you die. So all of those narrations are highlighting the same point. كَمَا ذَكَرَ شَيْخِ Some benefit at the end as well. قُرْبُ الْجَنَّةِ وَالنَّارِ مِنَ الْإِنسَانِ فَمَا بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ الْجَنَّةِ وَالنَّارِ إِلَّا أَنْ يَمُوتِ One of the benefits from this is the closeness of paradise or hell to a person. A person should not think, but all of the signs of the day of judgment are going to come yet, the Dajjal is going to come yet, all of these things are going to happen yet. Rather, for you, from your perspective, the only thing between you and your accountability is your death. Your death is the barrier, barzakh, and then afterlife. Your death is the cut-off point for you. Like in the hadith it mentions, يَتْبَعُ الْمَيِّتَ ثَلَاثَ أَهْلُهُ وَمَالُهُ وَعَمَلُهُ فَيَرْجِعُ اثْنَانِ وَيَبْقَى وَاحِدٌ يَرْجِعُ أَهْلُهُ وَمَالُهُ وَيَبْقَى عَمَلُهُ When a person dies, three things follow him to his grave, his family, and his wealth, and his actions. Two of them come back and only one stays. His family and his wealth, they come back. The inheritors will take the wealth. But only his actions stay with him. So at the point of death, 
That's it. You've done your actions, your accountability thereafter. إِذَا مَاتَ الْعَبْدِ انْقَطَعَ عَنْهُ عَمَلُهُ When a servant dies, his actions are then cut off. So all that there is between you and the accountability, between you and paradise and hell in reality, is your death. And you do not know when that death may come to you. In the narration it mentions al-jannah. أَقْرَبُ إِلَىٰ أَحَدِكُمْ مِنْ شِرَاكِ نَعْلِهِ وَالنَّارُ مِثْلَ ذَلِكَ that paradise is closer to you, to one of you than your shoelace. And likewise, hellfire. In some poetry he mentions there, Every person wakes up amongst his family. Every man, every person wakes up amongst his family. And death, is closer to him than his shoelace. And that's why Shaykh al said, how many people in the morning they wake up and they fasten their buttons, put on their clothes and fasten their buttons and go out, and they will never open their buttons, rather the person doing their janazah will open their buttons for them. So a person does not know when that death will occur, and so a person must constantly be upon that fear of shirk, And of course we know that as a believer, you balance the affairs between the hope and the fear. Hope for the mercy of Allah upon your shortcomings. Fear of the punishment of Allah upon those shortcomings. Fear of falling into the affairs of shirk. And so you maintain yourself upon tawheed, learning tawheed, learning the details of tawheed and the details of shirk. So you can maintain yourself upon Tawheed and separate and distance yourself from Shirk. That in brief is the chapter regarding Al-Khawfu Mina Shirk, having fear from Shirk. The next time we'll start the next chapter when we used to do this with Ashaykh Ubaid. Right now what would be happening is Babu du'a'i ila shahadati. He used to be three hours sometimes. We used to do three or four chapters in one sitting sometimes. But uh, we'll do one chapter only. So next time, inshaAllah ta'ala, Babu du'a'i ila shahadati an la ilaha illallah. It's like I've mentioned to you about the morning classes. They used to be the fajr classes. And sometimes those fajr classes, uh, in one time there was a conference. And in the conferences over there, you have a class after all the prayers basically. Uh, one after Fajr, one after Dhuhr, uh, one after Maghrib, one after Isha. The class which used to be after Fajr this one particular year at this conference in Medina in Tiblatain, the teacher, the Sheikh who was teaching that class, he would do the class for four hours. He would begin at Fajr, 5.30 after Fajr, or maybe 6 o'clock, Fajr was maybe 5, quarter past 5. So the class begins at 6 and you would finish about 10. Four hours. So that's what happened on the first day of the conference. The conference was, I think, two weeks long. So there would be classes after Fajr for two weeks. He was doing Kitabul Kabair. Four hours the first day. On the second day, sat down again. Everybody knew now what was going to happen. It was going to be four hours. So when uh, we sat down, the Sheikh sat down. He said, before I begin today, I was given a suggestion. He said, before I begin today, this is the second time now. Second time or third. He's been doing it four hours. He said, I was given a suggestion by some of the students. 
And they said to me, I, I think he said it was a paper, somebody gave me a paper with some suggestions in it. And the suggestion was that maybe we should do two hours and then take a tea break. Everybody can get up, stretch their legs, and then we'll come back and do two more hours, Sheikh. And I remember him sitting there saying, so this suggestion has come. But no, but no, we're going to finish our curriculum, uh, the, the conference. We're going to finish what we need to do. And when we finish, you can go do what you want. So uh, alhamdulillah, we'll only do one hour, not four. We'll finish on that for today then. If there's any questions, anything to add, you can add now. No, that doesn't count. So if you're a student in the class and your teacher comes, you need to try and read the best you can. That doesn't count as being a, a, a showing off or anything. In fact, it's a good point because the shaitan uses this as a means to deter the believer from doing actions. Exactly the example you gave as well. Imagine there's a person in the mosque now, you're reading the Quran, and you're reading it loud. Not loud, but you can hear yourself to practice properly. The reward of the reading of the Quran is with physical voice, not in your mind. So you're reading, and somebody walks in, and you think, oh, I better stop now. I don't want to read out loud. I don't want him to think, you know, oh, mashallah, his recitation and all these things. So I'll just carry on in my mind now. That has now become a deterrent for you from doing that act of worship. You're not reciting the Quran out loud again. You're not getting the reward of each letter again because you fear that this person coming in now could lead to me doing it as a means of showing off. That in reality should not be something that deters you from your actions. That is from the means of the shaitan to prevent you from doing good. He'll say to you, oh, well, if you recite now, you know you're doing it to show off. No, you're not. You continue. You were doing your action. Be sincere. Maintain that sincerity. As the Salaf said, you deal with your intention. You fight with your intention to keep it sincere. And you do not stop doing actions because people appear. If you stop doing all actions whenever somebody appears, that's clearly from the deception of the shaitan, preventing you and deterring you from actions. So you have to balance the affair. Anything else? You have no choice. But, see the, the, the combination of what you've mentioned there, it cannot exist like that. A person, he is overcome by the affairs of showing off. But there's a wajib, an obligation in the religion that he has to do. You can't say now, but I'm overcome by showing off, so I can't do this obligation. Obligation. You have to do it. And you just have to fight yourself. To ensure that you're upon sincerity in doing it. It's impossible to say, okay, this obligation is dropped now. You're no longer under this obligation due to this affair of showing off, overcoming you. Impossible. The obligations have to be fulfilled. 
and you just have to fight your intention. And the scholars, they say, they say, one of the means of purifying your intention is to just stop and think, who are you doing this worship for? Like we said at the beginning, Allah created you, created you for His worship. You think about your Lord, you think about uh, uh, the punishment, the blessings, you think about all of those affairs, your Lord, your Creator, when you focus and ponder on those things and the severity of the punishment of the hellfire for the one who commits sin, the reward of the one who uh, does it sincerely, those kinds of things increase and help you with intention. One of the Salaf mentioned as well, he said, when we started seeking knowledge, our intention was a little bit here and there. But once we got into it, then that knowledge rectified our intention as we went along. So maybe at the beginning a person isn't established and grounded, but the more you learn, the more you study, the more hadith, the more ayat, the more sunnah, the more your iman increases, the more your intention becomes grounded, inshallah. You know, by the way, at the end here now, when we do this Q&A or whatever, if anybody needs to leave, be free to leave, because it does get late. It's not a, uh, it's not a wajib to stay for this part. Oh. No regarding wiping over the socks hmm. with whatever conditions it has. But, uh, is there anything regarding the head garment? Head garment is permissible to wipe over if there is. If there is what? A wound, but okay, what does it all come under if there is a difficulty in removing it? Some of the scholars have mentioned if you are wearing some type of headgear that is extremely difficult to remove. This isn't classified as difficult, but sometimes some of the uh, uh, cultures, some of the people from certain countries, mashallah, it's a skill how you do the tying up. It's a skill to get it tied up and you look at it symmetrical, how has he done this? <laughs> so now sometimes it's difficult to remove all of that and to remove everything and then to wipe on the head and then to put it all back on again. There are some narrations in that type of scenario you're allowed to wipe over it. That's in the uh, chapters of wudu. In the books of Tahara and Wudu, it mentions about the Amama. Ustad, another question to that. If part of it were to cover your face, then what do you do when washing the face? No, uh, the face has to be washed. And uh, if there was that, there is a possibility of washing and then wiping the rest. But that would not be a situation you get yourself into in the first place. Because when you put it on, just don't put it on your face in the first place. If you're going to put it on like that, knowing I can't remove it for Wudu, then what's the purpose? Push it up to the hairline. So that you can wash all of your face. One second now. What technique would you use? You know, if you were to pray Juma in a in a Ikhwan Masjid, so would you deliberately go just at the time for Salah to miss the khutbah? There is a fatwa that, or, or a, a, a piece of advice that a Sheikh Rabia gave regarding that. Anybody remember it? Sheikh Rabia was asked exactly this question. If there is no Sunni masjid and there are only people of innovation and they are going to be saying things which are clearly and blatantly incorrect upon the member, deviation or bid'ah, whatever it might be. But on Jum'ah, what do you do then? Do you miss the khutbah then and only go and attend for the prayer? But uh, Sheikh Rabia was asked exactly that question. But I believe he said you still have to attend the khutbah for Jum'ah because of all the evidences regarding the khutbah of Jum'ah. 
to the extent as Shaykh Al-Athameen mentioned, normally when you come into the masjid, if the adhan is happening or whatever, when you enter the mosque, you're supposed to pray your... Uh, in, rather, when you walk into the mosque, if the adhan is going, at the time you walk into the mosque, you're supposed to wait and repeat after the mu'adhin. But on Jumu'ah, if you walk in and the adhan is happening, you're supposed to not wait and repeat. You're supposed to pray your tahiyatul masjid because repeating after the mu'adhin is a sunnah. Listening to the khutbah is a wajib. So then they say for that reason, in that case, you wouldn't wait and repeat after the mu'adhin. Pray now so that by the time you finish the adhan, you finish your prayer tahiyatul masjid and you can listen to all the khutbah. They never faced a situation where they would have to go to a mubtadi giving a khutbah. But uh, in those kinds of situations, it's very difficult. But what can you do? If there's no other mosque there, there's no way you can go. You try your best, you strive to get to somewhere which is good and decent. But if it's impossible, you have to pray your Jumu'ah. I mean, praying the Salah for, you know, no, but that's the point. The khutbah scholars have mentioned is wajib part of the uh, uh, on the Friday. You can't just purposely miss the khutbah. Because that scenario there, the rulings of the Jumu'ah and the khutbah and everything, they have a deep level of ruling for that too. So it can't be avoided because of these kinds of reasons. Mm. But you try your best to get to somewhere where it is good. Even if it's a commoner's mosque. Commoners who just get up and give a general khutbah every week, good. Better than going to some place... Ikhwanis or whatever it might be, talking about the rulers all day long, talking against the scholars all day long. Go to some common place where they just pray and go, it's better then. So does that mean when the khutbah is on, you don't pray, you just listen? You don't pray the two sides? No, no, then you have to pray. If you walk in and the khutbah has already started, you have to pray then. Pray, but shorten them, don't make them long. Too short, raka'at for tahitul masjid, then sit down. Difficult to take off. Does it even count for the arms? Uh, because sometimes some people have uh, things that can't be moved. On the arms? Yes. You'd have to take the whole shirt off, basically. Kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't uh, do it for the arms and other things. You can't. Uh, in that case, mashallah, that, uh, what's going to be left? <laughs> you have to uh, arms. You have to do all these things. The only exception in the hadith is the headgear. There is some narrations about some exceptions on the headgear. And of course we know about the socks and wiping over the socks. But the rest of it, no. The rest, the only exceptions are necessities, like medical necessities. You have a bandage or a broken arm or something, then you have to wipe over those areas. Also, uh, shoes? Is that... Shoes are the same as wiping over the socks. You could uh, wipe over the shoes. Mm-hmm. 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 You mentioned during the lesson that the Quran is there. Uh, no, sorry. Some scholars have this opinion, yeah. yeah, yeah. The scholars have mentioned there is a section of the hellfire for the Usatul Muahideen. The Usatul Muahideen, the sinners from the people of Tawheed. And that they may be punished. Believers may enter the fire and they may be punished. And then they exit from that afterwards, like in some narrations it mentions the burnt charcoal, but then they enter the river and they are like pearls. 
So there is a punishment possibly for some people first. That's a means of purification and then they enter paradise. Go on. What's the new rules? I think the new rules are what? There's, there's some new rules that came out this week. I think you have to do it in some places. I don't know what they are. I know I'm exempt because uh, they mentioned... Uh, so I don't really look into it too much because they mentioned even in places of worship, even the last time, the cleric, they say the cleric who is delivering or anything, is exempt. So uh, that's on the government rules. So masks, I don't know what you have to do, what the rules are, but I think now, I think you do have to wear them or something, I don't know. You have to check the rules, whatever they are. If the rules are you have to wear them, you should wear them. Follow the law of the land. We have no reason to uh, disobey the law of the land. There's no point studying and saying, you know, we obey the law of the land as long as it does not oppose the Sharia. Wearing a mask does not oppose the Sharia. The scholars are given the fatwa, you can wear it in the prayer even. So if that's the law of the land and they say you should be wearing masks, then do it. Obey the law of the land. It is. The scholars uh, have mentioned about taxes. Uh, you have to give them. You have to give your taxes. And you see, you know, the reality is, uh, uh, I mean, I personally remember asking Sheikh Muhammad Al-Aqil a few years ago uh, from here. I called him once from here to ask him about this because people were talking about taxes and self-employed especially and those kinds of things that, you know, because taxes... The argument is going to be that it's oppression and they're taking so much off us and this and that. But he said very simply when I explained it all, but Sheikh, they do this and they take this much and they take that much. Explained it all with passion. He said, the only thing he said, I remember I could hear he was like uh, on the street somewhere in the, in the car or something. He said, Ya Akhi, la takdib. He said, don't lie to them. La takdib. I remember saying, but Sheikh, la takdib. That's what he said. Don't lie. Don't lie. This is the, the land you live in. They want taxes. And you, uh, you know, the reality is overall the way it works, as they claim, your taxes, they are there for the road you drive your car on. They are there for the hospital when you get sick. This is what they claim and this is how they use them. In any case, even if that wasn't the case, that's the law of the land you're here. The sheikh said, don't lie and deceive on these kinds of things. You have to give some tax, whatever you have to give, you give it. With self-employed, if you're self-employed, like I was saying to somebody the other day, there are so many loopholes, they're going to pay you in the end. <laughs> legally, legally, you know, the expenses you can put down, legal expenses, not lying. Actual expenses, you know, driving a car 45p a mile or whatever it is, you have legal expenses you can put down legally without any uh, lying or haram, nothing of the sort. And you do all of that, get an accountant or somebody who knows about these things to do all of it in the proper way, legally, uh, where you can reduce your taxes and things. Last question then, or are we done? Last one right down there. Uh, Juma in school yeah. Then if you have to do it like that One person leads the prayer yeah. If you have to You're stuck There's no other way you can pray You can't get anywhere yeah. It's impossible Then a few of you come together One person Can do a khutbah Even if it's just five minutes Khutbah to haja At the beginning One hadith Two hadith A five minute khutbah It can be The Prophet ﷺ Only used to do 15 minute khutbahs For Friday 15 minutes Not like these days Everywhere half an hour 40 minutes I heard some people One hour 30 minutes for the khutbah. The Prophet ﷺ, if you look in the seerah, only used to do 15 minutes for Juma khutbah. Maybe if you push it out and you look at the narrations, 20 minutes. That's it. 
So you can do a five, six minute khutbah and then lead the prayer and Jum'ah. Alright, we'll conclude upon that for today then. Inshallah ta'ala, continue next week at the same time with the next chapter. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.